May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In uh, 2011, a Tulsa, Oklahoma man um, heard that the PBS show Antique Roadshow was coming to Tulsa. And so he had this little collection of, of rhino horn cups that he had bought over the years. And he was really cons- uh, curious as to what they were worth. And, um, and so he, he goes to the, to the Antique Roadshow to, to see if he can get you know, up there with one of the evaluators and, and have them look at it. Um, these little cups, as I said, they're carved from rhino horns, and they're very, they were, they were old. He knew they had to be very old. He wasn't sure how old. The first one he had bought in the 1970s, and he bought it in Bath, England. And, um, and as he was looking through this little antique shop, he came across it, and it was just, you know, one of the most beautiful things he'd ever seen. And he, he, he thought, you know, I really have to have this. And, uh, and so he asked the shop owner how much she would take for it. And she said, you know, $500 American would be the lowest price that she would go. And that was virtually all the money he had for his, um, for his holiday. And so he, uh, he ponies up the 500 bucks and he buys it. And, uh, and that was the very first one. He then buys four more over the next couple decades. At one time, he went to buy one of them and, he, and the, the amount was, uh, was so high for him, he had to, he had to use two different credit cards and then pull out some cash from his pocket just to be able to buy it. And, and all in all, he had in these five cups about $5,000. Um, and so he takes this uh, to this uh, PBS Roadshow. This guy, um, Lark Mason is his name, I guess, the, uh, the, the evaluator, the, the kind of um, host of the program, looks at him and, and he's examining these and he's saying, you know, these are quite remarkable, you know, and looking at the details in them and, and, and pointing them out, you know, little dragons crawling up one of them. And he says that they were used as, as wine libation cups for religious and ceremonial purposes in the 17th and 18th century. So they were indeed bona fide antiques. And he asked the man, you know, how much he had paid for them and he told him, you know, all total about $5,000. And he says, well, how much do you think they're worth? And the guy says, you know, I have no idea. Um, I think maybe they are pretty valuable, but I have no real idea as to how much worth. I really dislike them, and that's why I bought them. And he says, well, maybe you would be surprised to know that these five cups, I would place the value on them at $1.5 million. And you can see the stunned look in the man's face, and he says, maybe I won't have to rely on Social Security after all, you know. I always wondered if he was married. You know, this was the last part of the story I didn't really hear, you know. I wondered if he was married. Because I wonder if when he bought the third and fourth one, you know, if his wife was like, another rhino cup, really? You're going to get another? I mean, I hear that couples do this. I know I have no experience with it. But um, I hear that, that sometimes, you know, they sort of needle one another about this. Um, another one? And then I can imagine later that he says to her, they're worth millions, you know. Like, how about that? They're worth millions. Uh, yeah, right. Um, you know, that never happens with me. You know, the the baseball bobbleheads that I collect or whatever. You know, I don't think they're ever going to show up. You know, the beer boots or um, you know maps of the state of Ohio. The things that I think are cool turn out to be like next year's garage sale things. You know, and I always wonder why in the world I bought them in the first place. But I'm like, I'm always hoping to find that rare gem, you know, that, that rare find, that kind of, that authentic kind of collectible. And, um, 
And I think it'll be a really great you know, thing if it ever happens, but it almost never will. And I think we all sort of want that, don't we? We want the rare find. That's what Isaiah's prophecy is about, really, today. It's about the real thing, about the, about the authentic, the genuine, the bona fide. This is what it's about. Um, a little just short background, Isaiah writes uh, to people um, way ahead of his time. He's, he's writing to people who have been exiled into Babylon. Um, the city of Jerusalem was laid waste by the Babylonians. It was destroyed. Uh, it, was, it was burnt to the ground. Even the temple was destroyed, burnt to the ground. And then a, a, a goodly number of the people were, were exiled. They were taken from their homes in Jerusalem and moved to what is today modern-day Baghdad, Iraq, hundreds of miles away. And, uh, and they were exiled, and they lived there for a long time. And, and then they eventually, uh, the Babylonians fall to the Persians. The Persians allow the, the Jews to go home, and they head back to Jerusalem. And this is the, the people that, that Isaiah is writing to. They've kind of come back home, and they found their home a wasteland. Their home's destroyed, their temple destroyed, everything is in ruins. And they try to build a civilization back. And as they do, you know, things are not always that smooth. They don't always go that well. And, and so the people restore religion to the society. They, they want to go back to the worship of Yahweh. And they even try to, to use this, you know, they, they call for days of fasting, thinking, well, maybe if we begin to fast and, and show a, a penitential spirit, then, then God will bless. He'll restore our fortunes. He'll bring back the good old days. Um, and, and this is what's going on when Isaiah breaks in and, and he, he begins to preach to the people, these people. One of the difficulties in reading Isaiah is that a lot of people read prophecy and think it's all about predicting the future. The prophets could indeed predict the future, but their predicting the future was really predicated on speaking into the present. They would usually predict the future as a way of saying, look, here's what's happening in the present, and if you don't change, here's what's going to happen in the future. And then it would come to pass that the people didn't change, and their, their prophecy would happen. But when you think of the preachers, when you think of people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, think of them as preachers who speak into the present moment. They're preachers of righteousness. And it's sort of unfortunate that we don't have the whole chapter before us because there's really a lot in the context. I want to read to you, if you'll just listen to the very beginning verses here of the 58th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Uh, This is a quote. So this is um, God uh, saying to Isaiah, God speaking to Isaiah, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. I want you to shout this out, Isaiah. I have something for you to say. Declare to my people their transgression, the house of Jacob their sin. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They ask me of righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? This is what the people are saying to God. Lord, we've fasted. Haven't you seen? We've, we've gone days without food. And yet, you know, you're not coming through for us. You know, the economy's not bouncing back like it should be. You know, the, the walls of the city aren't going up. People aren't really doing what they should be doing. Um, we have humbled ourselves. And you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. This is God's response. You think you you think you're pulling one over on me that you're fasting and and um, you're doing it for the right reasons. Isaiah says that God rejects their religious practices. God is not in favor of their fasts and assemblies. In fact, the Lord says, "Is this the fast that I choose?" 
You think I really like this? This is really what I want, the way I designed it? The Old Testament scholar J.A. Motier says this, that the people were behaving like pagans. They, um, they were trying, he says, to pressure the Lord into response. But the essence of Israelite religion is response to the Lord, not doing things to influence the Lord, but doing what he commands and obeying him. You see, the people were calling for a fast. They wanted their economy to bounce back. They wanted their nation to be strong again. They wanted a, a, a better military. And so they call for a fast, and then they say, God, you owe us. We've done this. It's time to pay up. You owe us for these. The Lord breaks in and responds. In, uh, in verse 6, he says, as I said, is not, is, it, is not this the fast that I chose? What is the sort of fast that I want you to have? To loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? What's the sort of fast that I want? I want the sort of fast when you take care of the hungry and the needy. When you see somebody who's homeless and you help house them. That's the sort of fast that I want to see take place. The sort of fast where you actually are engaged with the needs of the people around you. Not just going through the liturgy of the worship. But showing kindness to those who need kindness. Not just reading a psalm responsively or singing a hymn. But doing some engaging in the world. Engaging with the needs that you see around you. Uh, you know this passage in, in 1 John, um, in John's first letter, J- John says, um, if we say that we love God and see our, our brother in need and don't help him, we are liars. How can we say that we love God whom we have not seen when we don't love the person that we can see? This is Isaiah's point as well. God is at work in the world. The right priority is the priority of, of taking care of those around us. Treat people with love and respect. But he goes on in verse 13. This is in our, our, our passage today. He says, um, uh, not just the, taking care of those around you, but verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, a day holy and honorable to the Lord, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then, shall, uh, then you shall delight in the Lord. And it will make you, and he, and I will make you rather ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You call for a fast so that everything will be good in your world, and that's not the sort of fast that I want. Isaiah says that God says that's not the sort of fast that I want. I want the sort of fast where you take care of the people around you, and you don't start fights, and you don't treat people wickedly. And I want the sort of the sort of religion where you take serious my role in your life, that you gave up a whole day every week for me, that Sabbath is a day unto the Lord. I don't think we think much about Sabbath. Um, And sometimes it's been abused in many ways, you know, that you weren't allowed to do anything on the Sabbath. You know, anything of of fun or uh, excitement was was forbidden. Um, There's whole histories of churches who have gone through this. But also Sabbath ought to be more than just 60 minutes. It ought to be more than just a a gathering together to sing a few hymns and say a few prayers. 
The Sabbath is about dedicating one-seventh of our week to the worship and observance of God in our midst. And this is a difficult thing to do, and I don't, I don't pretend to tell you how to do it for you or me to do it for me. I'm just saying that Sabbath is it's a command. It's a command that falls right in there with, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. This is, this is God's command. And to do that does sometimes create some kind of, of awkwardness in the rest of our life. It's not a day for commerce. It's a day for creation and recreation and recognizing God's presence in our midst. Perhaps that you would notice if you looked at this tag, this passage altogether, that what Isaiah does is sort of a reversal of what Jesus says in his summary of the law. That, that summary that we read about 40 weeks a year in here. If we're not doing Ten Commandments, we're doing summary. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbors yourself. Isaiah kind of reverses the process, doesn't he? He says, first of all, you ought to love your neighbor because how can you say you love God if you don't love your neighbor? They go hand in glove, don't they? And I don't know about you, but I love the liturgy of the church. I mean, I really love it. I'm kind of a... um, I'm kind of addicted to this stuff. I I love love the the hymns. I I love the ancient prayers, candles. I love when we have evening services with incense. I mean, it might choke you, but I'm into it. You know, Um, I I, I like like weekly communion. It's it's necessary for me. The the liturgy of the church is beautiful and it's so meaningful and rich. I love it. But I... I have to remember that this is to prepare me for the real liturgy, which is living it out on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, Friday, Saturday. That it's, it's part of the way that, that God creates us, transforms us, makes us fit for the world. When you think of religion, is it Sunday morning? I mean, is that what it is? Is it Sunday morning in the pew, kneeling at the rail? Is that what religion is? Because I think Isaiah would say that's not enough. It's not enough. It's a good start, but if it doesn't transform to Monday at the office, or Wednesday at the coffee shop, or Friday when you walk past that guy who's sitting at the, on the edge of the sidewalk with a cardboard handwritten sign, if it doesn't transform into something like that, it doesn't count. I worked at a Christian institution where there were all these rules and regulations about things you could wear and couldn't wear and where you could go and what you could eat and drink and all these sorts of things. But then I would see administrators who would berail secretaries and say mean, hurtful things. Isaiah would say that's absolutely the reverse of what it ought to be. It ought to be a world where we're... We're, we're constantly conversant in kindness and generosity. It's a whole life paradigm. You know, I suppose that if I ever found that one of my bobbleheads was worth a million dollars, I mean, I would be ecstatic. My wife would be, um, you know, probably in near shock. It would probably call for an ambulance, you know, um, Something would have to be done. But, you know, if there was this rare find, if I had this, you know, in one of my many boxes in the basement or in the garage, this rare find that would be, like, really valuable thing, I think that would be, that'd be awesome. It would be so surprising. But it would be awesome. It would be great. But I think we all ought to have this rare thing, this true religion, 
that loves God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we love all of our neighbors just like we love ourselves. I think, I think that would be rare in the world. And it would also be so infectious. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.